No, we are um, in this epic story of the Old Testament. We're transported back to a time where the people of God, Israel at the time, God's chosen people, they're worshiping other gods. They're in the midst of a three-year drought. There's been no rain. And the people have begun worshiping or bowing the knee to Baal, who was the storm god. He, they believed that uh, he, he was in control of the weather. And so they begin, um, after a three-year drought, they begin worshiping the storm god Baal. And God's people seemed to think that uh, this God would provide them rain. So instead of trusting and looking to the one who created it all and the one who controls the weather, they resorted to bowing the knee to this false God. The people, they resorted to pragmatism. They're just doing, they're they're really just a product of the culture. They're just doing what, what they thought would be right. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. Instead of creating culture and worshiping the Lord, they've started worshiping other gods and other idols and other, uh, you know, just really going along with, with the culture. It's a dark time in the people of God's history and the people are being led by a wicked king, a wicked king. He's evil. His name is Ahab. And the Bible records um, in the previous chapters of 1 Kings that, quote, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. It says, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. And then it says that Ahab, this king, did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. And so we have an evil, wicked king leading the people of God away from worship of the one true God and into a worship of idols and really just to be products of the culture. And this is obviously a very bad king, a bad leader and a bad time for Israel. They're disobeying the Lord at every turn. They've lost their way. They've forgotten who deserves their true full worship and devotion and they've forgotten the only one who can truly satisfy and can truly provide what they need. This is the history of the people of God. And lest we think that this time is so different and distant from the time that we are in now, we must think again. Because though we may not be bowing the knee and, and, uh, and worshiping Baal, we certainly have idols and gods in our culture today that we worship and bow down to. Whether it's the God of money, many of us worship money. We devote ourselves to getting more of it and maintaining it. Many of us worship security. Um, the middle class suburban life of comfort and security is the goal. We might call this the God of the American dream. Many of us worship ourselves. (laughs) We do whatever it takes to make ourselves happy and and make ourselves feel good, no matter if it honors God or not. And wherever you look for provision, wherever you look for satisfaction, wherever you look for happiness, therein is an idol. Therein is a false God that you are worshiping. It could be our jobs, our families, our kids, even our our vacations, our stuff and our very own selves can all become idols that we bow the knee to and worship them as we look to them for happiness instead of looking to the true source of joy, satisfaction in our lives, the one true God, the Lord revealed to us in Jesus. So the situation that the people of God in are in 1 Kings 18 that we just read is not so different from the time that you and I are in today. And back then, 
God sent a prophet named Elijah to speak his word and to demonstrate that the one true God is indeed Lord and he used Elijah to triumph over the false gods of the time. And now we have this story recorded in scripture for us to have the same experience for us to understand and to be pierced by the truth that the Lord revealed to us in Jesus is the one true God who is alive, who answers his people and is worthy of our whole devotion, our whole lives. And that's the point today, that the Lord is the one true God who is alive, who answers his people and is worthy of our whole devotion. That's the idea. And we see this first in verses 17 through 21, where we see that the Lord will not allow worship of other gods. The Lord will not allow worship of other gods. Look back. We didn't read this in, in, the, in, in the original text, but I want to back up just a little bit to verse 17 and go 17 through 21. Look at what it says. When Ahab, this is the evil king, saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now I told you, um, well, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is the first commandment that the people of God had received. And here we find them shattering the first commandment. They're breaking it. They're being disobedient to the Lord. And also I told you that Ahab was an evil, wicked, awful king who's leading the people astray. And after three years of drought, there's been no rain. They're in a tough circumstance, a tough situation. Um, Ahab, this king, sees Elijah and says, you trouble of Israel, kind of blaming it on him. This wicked king is blaming the one whom God is going to use to call his people back to him, to worship him. Instead, this king is pointing the finger at him and saying, you troubler of Israel. And uh, the irony is rich here. That the, that the king who is leading the people astray would, would call out the actual man of God who is being used by God to turn his people back. And this is just a small point that we can take away from Ahab, that before we start pointing the finger at other people because of our situations and circumstances, we may need to look internally first and ask ourselves if we might be the troubler of Israel. <laughs> So if there's ever an issue or problems that you see within the church, problems you have with other people, or you don't maybe like where we are, where we're going, what's going on, before you begin to, to point the finger, maybe just look internally first to see, am I, am I being pure? Am I leading uh, with integrity where I need to lead? Am I, am I um, honoring the Lord in my spheres of influence here within the body of Christ? Before we begin pointing the finger to say, you troubler of Israel, maybe it is us, in fact, that is the troubler of Israel. But <clears throat> Elijah says in verse 19, as we move on, that it's time for a showdown. Dun -dun 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 it's the final countdown, baby. Here we go. The prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of the Asherah versus Elijah. It's the final countdown. 
the showdown is set in verse 19. Elijah says, gather all the people of Israel at Mount Carmel, all of them, and the prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Bring, bring them together. Elijah demands that all the people and all the prophets come. They gather together at Mount Carmel. And verse 20, that says Ahab sent all the people and gathered all the prophets at Mount Carmel, seems to indicate to us that Ahab really had no problem with this. He's like, all right, let's do it. He, he must have thought, um, and this is interesting because it is believed that Mount Carmel, where, where the showdown is to take place, was a center, kind of the, the center of Baal worship. So this, is, this has... Um, there, there's history, obviously, with the people of Israel because it, we're going to see later that there was an altar to the Lord, an altar to Yahweh that had been torn down. But this was thought of to be a center of worship for Baal. So Ahab is like, you want to go by yourself and you want to go there? Okay, <laughs> let's do it. He, he had confidence. Elijah is fighting on, um, he, he's playing a road game, if you will. He, he, is, he is away and he is um, vastly outnumbered. So he is completely alone and on enemy territory. So obviously Ahab has no problem with this. He's like, you want to go where and you want to fight who? Okay, good luck. Right, this is any great underdog story. This is Rudy. This is Rocky. This is the Miracle on Ice. This is the Mighty Ducks. The people are all there. And Elijah delivers a shot to the heart of the people of God that I believe is a shot that we also need to receive right in the heart again today. He says in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. This is where the people were caught and it rendered them silent. The rest of verse 21, the people did not answer him a word. See, they knew Yahweh, the Lord, their God. They knew him. Um, he, he was the one who rescued them out of slavery. He's the one that brought them through the Red Sea that parted the waters. He's the one that revealed himself, gave them the law, that knew that they were supposed to, to live a certain way. They knew it. They knew their God. I don't, I don't think that they had completely forgotten their, their history. I think they knew who their God was and how he had miraculously saved them. I don't think they forgot. But I think that they wanted to claim him as their God, but not actually live like it. So I think this might strike a chord for, for some of us today because it might be really nice and really easy to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I know Jesus. Yeah, totally. Um, we we want to we be able to claim his name, but then not actually live like it, to not actually have a, a change of life, a change of heart, and a change of behavior. See, claiming Christ, it might still, in kind of the suburban Bible belt where we are, it might still get us some social credibility. You know, it might get us out of some awkward conversations with our mom and dad or with our neighbors who are asking like, hey, are you a Christian? You know, you go to church anywhere? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I'm good with Jesus, right? Um, and, and this is where we, we find ourselves. Um, we we want to claim Jesus as God, but then we actually want to search for satisfaction. We want to find ultimate fulfillment and we want to find joy and pleasure and happiness and anywhere else but Christ. And this is where we, we find ourselves in the, in the same position here and Jesus will not allow it. 
In the same way that, that God uses Elijah to say, if Yahweh is God, you're gonna follow him. If Baal, follow him, go for it. But, but don't, don't waver in between two opinions. Quit limping back and forth thinking that everything is okay. You can claim him by name, but then not actually live like it. That time is up. We gotta go all in. Now, if you're gonna go this way, go this way. But if you're gonna worship the Lord, then worship him, go all in. And Jesus says something similar. Remember where he says, you can't serve both God and money. You'll hate the one and serve the other, serve the one and hate the other. You can't do both. So if you belong to Jesus today, your life should reflect it. So how long you today, beloved Christian, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If Jesus is God, follow him, go all in. But if money is God, then follow it. If your political candidate is God, follow him or her. If, you're, if yourself is God, then keep, keep doing whatever it, you do to make yourself feel better and, and seek pleasure within yourself. But if Jesus is God, then follow him. What we see in verses 22 through 24 is that the God who answers is God. The God who answers is the true God. Elijah says to the people, I, even I, am left. I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let the two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood, put no fire on it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God. I will call upon the name of Yahweh, the Lord, and the God who answers by fire. He is God. The God who answers is God. Now, this is tricky for us to apply today because we should not put the Lord our God to the test. Right? We are not Elijah, but principally what we learn here is still true, I believe, that the God who answers is God. The God who answers is God. Now, I'm not advocating that you try out other religions uh, or try worshiping other gods. I do not want you to do that. But some of you, maybe in your experience, have tried worshiping other gods and have found them to be as mute and deaf and dumb as Baal is proven to be here. You've maybe searched out every area and arena of happiness and pleasure that you could find in this life, doing what is right in your own eyes and you've reached the end of yourself and say, yeah, that doesn't satisfy. There were no answers there. That God did not answer because there's only one true living God who does answer his people. Maybe you've were another religion and you find, found that God to be um, mute he didn't provide, he didn't give an answer, right? Um, you know, the, the kind of humanism or agnosticism in this life, it doesn't, it doesn't offer the questions to life that we have. There, there's no God there to answer. And one of the things that, that um, has always been and continues to, to be something that intrigues me about the Christian faith is that it has answers for everything that we see in life. Um, the, the biblical storyline and, and the, the Christian faith, the Christian story, it provides answers for all of life's biggest questions. It can account for creation. It can account for the evil and pain and suffering that we see in the world. It can account for joy and happiness. It can account for where we're headed in the end. There are answers for all of those things that the Christian faith offers. But not only does it have answers for the questions we have in life, it has a God who answers an actual personal God that we can commune with that answers us. 
We have a God who answers. He, he is alive and he answers his people. He's not distant and far away. He is near and he's with us. We don't have to jump through hoops and dance to get him to answer us like the prophets of Baal are going to do. All we have to do is simply go to him in prayer and he hears us and he responds. The God who answers is God. The God who answers is God. Ultimately, our God in Christ is God. By the way, Elijah says the God who answers by fire. And uh, if you kind of know the Bible, we, we know that God has revealed himself through fire several times. It is a, a symbol of, the, of the, pre, the very presence of God. And God answered ultimately, we might, we might believe, uh, in, in sort of a, a final and ultimate sense, when tongues as of fire came down and dwelt upon the first apostles at, um, at Pentecost, signifying that now we have the very presence of God himself dwelling within us. So now no longer do we have to set up an altar and call down fire. We actually have the very presence of God within us through faith in Jesus. So we have the very presence of God that is dwelling within us, that is um, guiding us, leading us, and ultimately, in some sense, answering as we go through life. That's our God. Verses 25 through 29 teach us, on the other hand, that the gods of this world will not answer, save, or satisfy. The gods of this world will not answer, save, or satisfy. Remember, we could replace Baal worship with any number of idols that we have in our lives today. Money, security, ourselves. Those gods, they will not answer, save, or satisfy. Look back at verses 25 through 29 with me. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl, prepare it first. I'll even let you go first for your many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. They took the bowl that was given them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, several hours. All morning long, they're saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. He's mute and he's deaf. And they limped along the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. We get a little holy sarcasm here. Okay, we're, I think we're supposed to laugh at this. Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. Maybe your God went to the bathroom. Maybe he's busy. Or he's on a journey. Maybe he's on vacation. I don't know. He's not answering though. Perhaps he's asleep. Maybe he's taking a nap and he must be awakened. Holy sarcasm here from Elijah. They cried aloud. This is where it gets sad though. It turns dark. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Isn't this sad? That these people are literally killing themselves upon um, t t trying to, to get this false god or this idol to answer them, to save them, to satisfy their needs and their desires. They're doing everything they can to try and get an answer out of this false god. But isn't this, in some sense, what we do today? As we pursue the idols of our day, we look, we spend all of our time looking for answers, looking for salvation, looking for satisfaction in everywhere other than in Christ where it can be found. These idols, they always want more, more, more. Just like the prophets of all, they start out by calling upon his name and then things get more drastic. They always want more, more, more. They demand more of you. That's what money does, doesn't it? 
Some of us maybe have worked ridiculous hours sacrificing our time with the Lord and our time with family to try and and get more, more, more. We're serving and we're worshiping this God that always demands more, but it's never gonna satisfy. It's never gonna answer. It's never gonna give us what we truly need. See, in this way that we're no different than the prophets of Baal who cut themselves upon the altar of Baal waiting for him to answer, but he never does. No one answered, no one listens. Another interesting idol and probably the biggest one of our culture today is the idol of ourselves. This is a, a tricky one, a challenging one, but basically this way of thinking is, is kind of second nature in our culture today where my own happiness, my own joy is the most important thing and it comes from within me. Basically, I am God and, and I demand to be worshiped and I deserve to, to have all of the, the pleasure and the happiness and it comes from within me. Whatever I feel like I am is what I am and I have to express that no matter what. This is kind of the, the cultural waters that we find ourselves in, but really it's just self-worship and idolatry. This is evidenced by social media where everything is self-centered. Everything promotes myself and, and it's meant to, to get my own self out there for people to praise me. Oh yeah, you're so cute, you know, whatever. Uh, we, this, is, this is what we do. This is, you know, I'm not bashing social media all in all, but this is a, an evidence of that. Or we mutilate our bodies to try and keep up an appearance. Again, this may not always be, but certainly could be forms of self-worship. And as we serve the idol of ourselves, when we make ourselves God, we're looking to ourselves to provide. And in the process, we're no different than the prophets of Baal who are looking to a false God to answer, to provide satisfaction, salvation, and to satisfy. Again, this form of idolatry is subtle, but it's essentially the air we breathe in our culture. And it's a form, this form of thinking has led to the revolutions that we've seen in our culture um, where one, what, what was once a uh, widely looked down upon or condemned is now celebrated in our culture. The different sexual and transgender revolutions that we've gone through. Now, how did we get there? Well, it's explained at least in part by self-worship, by idols, um, by worshiping ourselves. And somewhere we reached the point where ultimate happiness and satisfaction is to be found within. And I can only be happy when I can act on whatever impulse I can and I have to be celebrated for it. Now, it may not take such extreme forms within the church and with you and I today, but we need to push away this, um, this form of idolatry in our lives where ourselves are worship. Because biblically, we know that salvation, that happiness, and that satisfaction must come from without, outside of us, not from within. We need our course of life and we need our worth and um, we need our love to be pronounced by somebody outside of us. It's not gonna come from within. Because ultimately we are, we are broken. But we need somebody else to declare our worth, to define who we are, to shape the course of our lives. And of course that someone is Jesus. As Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So within ourselves, seeking to satisfy our own desires or looking for it in money and security, health, wealth, fame, prosperity, whatever idols um, we're pursuing, ultimately, we're never going to be at rest because they can never satisfy, save, and they cannot answer. Only Jesus can. Verses 30 through 38 show us that the one true God answers. The one true God answers. Elijah calls all the people. He says, come near to me. And the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. 
Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar, about the altar. As great as it could contain two seas of food, uh, sorry, seed. And he put the wood in order and uh, cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. This is epic. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering in the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now notice the difference between what the prophets of Baal had to do in order to try and get Baal to answer them and what Elijah does for the Lord to answer him. Hours of crying out, dancing around, cutting themselves. Um, And then instead, we see Elijah offering a simple prayer. He prays that God would be known. He prays that God's word would be proven true. And he prays that the people would know that, that the Lord is God. And that their hearts would be turned back. Good pattern of prayer for us today. A simple prayer offered is all it takes for our God to answer. This prayer wasn't for show, though it did demonstrate and show that the Lord does answer his people. Of course, the Lord answers Elijah's prayer. The offering is consumed, licking up the water in the trench. Yes, God can burn water. But more importantly, the Lord answers his people. Everywhere we look for meaning, for purpose, for satisfaction in this life will leave us empty, but the living God will answer. He has proven this to us ultimately by the sending of his son, Jesus. And if we trust in Jesus to save, we now have access to God in prayer wherever and whenever. And we can trust that he hears us and will answer because of what Jesus has done. Our God answers his people. And lastly, And verses 39 through 40 teaches us this unequivocally, that the Lord is God, no other. The Lord is God, no other. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The response of the people to what God had done is to fall on their faces in worship. The Lord proves that he is the one true God. Indeed, he is the only God. All the other so-called gods of the world do not answer because they cannot answer because they're not real. The Lord has acted decisively here. He leaves no doubt that he is the one true God that is worthy of all the people's devotion. And the people respond by falling on their faces in worship. And the same is true for us today. I'm going to wrap up with this and we'll respond in worship as well. But the Lord acted decisively here in the story with Elijah. And the Lord has also acted decisively in our own time and in our own lives, hasn't he? He's acted decisively, ultimately, through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God in the flesh. 
You see, on a different hillside, not Mount Carmel, but on the hillside of Calvary, another showdown happened where the Lord triumphed over the enemies of the day of Satan, sin, and death. And God acted decisively in the person of Jesus and showed that he is the one true God worthy of all our worship and devotion when Jesus rose from the dead. That is the act of That is the decisive act that calls us then as the people of God to follow him and him alone, to worship him with our whole lives and with our lips. And in response, our response should be the same, that we fall on our faces in worship of God because of what he has done for us. May we no longer go limping between two opinions. May we no longer look for salvation and satisfaction anywhere but Jesus. He is the only one that can satisfy. He's the only one that answers. And he's proven that he alone is God. And verse 40, it's a tough one to end on. It raises some questions, but it teaches us that God takes idolatry very seriously. Verse 40 ends, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, God takes idolatry very seriously. He will not allow his name to be slandered. He will not be mocked and he will not allow his people to go on worshiping other gods. This is decisive here. What Elijah is doing is is calling the people um, in this context back to the law, which is Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 15, which said, if anyone leads Israel into idolatry, they're to be put to death. That person um, should have death by the sword. And again, this shows how seriously God took idolatry, took false worship, because this was the people's greatest threat. Again, ultimately God was going to bring about the salvation of the world through this line. And so idolatry was to um, throw that off track and he's not going to allow it because ultimately Jesus would come through this line. So this is ultimately God preserving Um, the line of the Messiah to get rid of any idolatry. Idolatry had to be purged. Now, on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus coming, things are a little different, but God still hates idolatry. He will still not allow us to worship other gods along with him. Jesus alone is God, then we must follow him and worship him. And with the same passion and the same fervor, which led the people of Israel to fall on their faces and to get rid of those who led them into idolatry is the same fervor and the same passion with which we should fall on our faces and kill any idolatry and sin in our own lives. So it doesn't look like um, putting any people to death, but it looks like killing the idols and the sins that are in our own hearts with the same passion and fervor that might lead us away from true, undivided worship of the Lord. The idols of self, consumerism, security should be destroyed as we look only to Jesus for comfort, for satisfaction, and for meaning in this life. So two questions in, what are the idols in your life? Two areas of response. What are the idols in your life? What is taking up more time, more energy, and uh, more attention than God? there is anything like that, then it's an idol that needs to be destroyed, to be gotten rid of in our lives. So let's identify them and get rid of them. And then in response to the decisive act of Jesus on the cross and from raising from the dead, let us also 
um, fall on our faces in worship because of what Jesus has done. And then may we worship him with our whole lives and follow him because he is the one true God who is alive, who answers his people and is worthy of our whole devotion. Amen. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by what you heard today. If you'd like more information about Champion Forest Baptist Church, our service times, or how you can get connected, visit us at championforest.org. Thanks so much. Have a great day and God bless.